hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the field feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. When my kids were younger, uh, we used to read the Jesus Storybook Bible together, which, which begins like this. A lot of people think that the Bible is a book of rules that you should follow, or heroes that you should imitate. And while the Bible does have some rules, it is first and foremost a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a, a far-off country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has actually come true in real life. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. This is really a stunning idea if you think about it. Because the Bible isn't one book that someone sat down and decided to write one day. It's a collection of 66 books written by dozens of authors over 
a period of about 1,500 years. And yet, there's this remarkable unity within it. It's telling one story. Even the parts that were written a thousand years before Jesus was born point to him. Including Psalm 80, which was written over 700 years before Jesus' birth. So let's dive in. It's a psalm you may have noticed with a chorus. The chorus gets repeated three times in verses 3, 7, and 19. And it's a communal lament psalm. Meaning it invites the whole nation of Israel to cry out to God in one voice together. So why are they crying out? What is going on? Well, there, there's an inscription uh, at the top of the Greek translation of this psalm that says, concerning the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were a superpower with an army to match. Uh, take a look at this, at this map here. Uh, you see this, uh, this, this dark green section? That's what Assyria looked like in 824 uh, B.C. Fast forward 150 years, and the empire expanded to fill in that whole light green section. Now, there was no Louisiana Purchase. That, 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 is, that is a lot of military victories. Um, Israel's northern kingdom knew all about Assyria, knew all about their advanced weaponry, uh, the cities that they had destroyed, the deportations they had carried out, and most importantly, the fact that they were really no match for them. Um, the whole psalm is a plea for God to protect the northern kingdom from Assyrian attack. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, all these northern cities. Awaken your might, come and save us. And then the lament begins in verse 4. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. There's a, there's a lot going on in these verses. I remember Israel was God's covenant people. God saved them when they were slaves in Egypt. He brought them out. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will make you great. I will bless all the nations on earth through you. You're going to show the world what I'm like. But there's a condition. If you obey my commands, I will protect you and you'll flourish in the land. But if you disregard my commands, I will remove my hand of protection. And your enemies will swoop in and steal your land. And the psalmist knows his history. He knows what's going on. God is removing his hand. And the question is, is it too late to avert disaster? We drink tears by the bowlful, imagining what could happen if Assyria swoops in here. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors. Nobody respects us. Our enemies mock and ridicule us. They say we're pushovers. Things are really bad. And the rest of the psalm is dominated by this image of a vine. Uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the vine is a metaphor for Israel. Listen to verse 8. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. 
You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reach as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. God, you have invested a lot in this relationship. And then verse 12, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. In other words, what was the point of saving us from slavery and leading us through the wilderness and giving us this land if you're just going to leave us when we need you most. How senseless would it be if after all you've done for us, you allowed the Assyrians to pick our grapes and cut us down? It's a pretty bold prayer. He's basically saying, God, if you don't save us, you're going to look really stupid. You're going to look like you made a terrible investment. I think I've told you that there's a field across the street from our house. And more often than not, it goes unharvested. Every November, we watch the crops collect frost and die on the field. And I have no idea why this keeps happening, but it doesn't make me think well of the farmer. In verse 16, the psalmist starts to imagine the future. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Is this how it's going to go down, God? <laughs> You're our only hope. Verse 17, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us. and We will call on your name. And one final chorus, restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Israel is teetering on the edge of a precipice. If God doesn't intervene, they're toast. It's like in the Lord of the Rings, and the kingdom of Rohan retreats to Helm's Deep just before a massive army of orcs appears on their doorstep, and they know that they cannot defend themselves. Their only hope is to be rescued, and the question is, will Gandalf show up in time? So what happens in the northern kingdom? Well... In 722, 721 B.C., the Assyrians attack. Samaria, the capital, uh, is torched. The kingdom falls. There's a massive deportation. And the northern kingdom is never heard from ever again. And now you know the rest of the story. Now we have to ask why. Why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he save his people? The Bible is filled with rescue stories. Why doesn't God answer their prayer? It's a good prayer. Restore us. Make your face shine on us. Save us. What happened? There's a clue in verse 4. It says, How long, Lord God Almighty, will, you, will your anger smolder? against the prayers of your people. This is kind of a weird verse. Why would God's anger smolder against the prayers of his people? 
Now, we might understand if his anger smoldered against the sins of his people, but why would God be angry at their prayers? There were two prophets in the northern kingdom around this time, Micah and Amos. Their message was pretty straightforward. Hey, guys, remember the covenant? Return to God and he will return to you. And then they kind of put some specifics down. Uh, Stop trampling the poor. Stop denying the oppressed justice. Stop committing sexual assault. Stop ripping people off in the marketplace. (laughs) Just look at your houses. They are filled with the wealth that you've stolen from those you should have been protecting. So there were some serious issues. And despite everything that was going on every day, all throughout the kingdom, Israel kept going through uh, the motions of their religion. They kept praying. They kept worshiping. They kept making sacrifices. And so God finally says through Amos, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your worship services. I will not accept your offerings, and I'm closing my ears to your singing. He says through Micah, I will hide my face from your prayers. I will tune you out. Why? Because he knows it's all lip service. It's just dead religion. There's no relationship. There's no trust. There's no obedience. There's no delight. Their hearts are far from him. They do whatever they want, whatever feels good. And then when they need something, when their backs are up against the wall, they ring their little bell and they expect God to jump. At the end of the day, they want God's protection. They want God's blessings, but they don't want God. They're using him. But they don't love him. God says, look, if you reject me, if you abuse my children, if you ignore my messengers, why should I listen to you? Why should I rescue you? You call me shepherd, but you treat me like a butler. You call me mighty one, but you act like I'm inconsequential. You say you're a vine, where's your fruit? Why doesn't God save them? Because they don't actually care about him. They don't actually want to be his people. The relationship has flatlined. Did you notice in the prayer they keep asking God to turn his face toward them? And yet they won't turn toward him. One of the points history, I think, is showing us here is that sin has consequences. God is merciful, but he's not an enabler. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love, but he's not going to force himself on anyone. Israel did not want to be God's covenant partner anymore. They wanted to go their own way, and God gave them what they wanted. Restoration is not automatic. God is not going to zap you into submission. He's not going to force you into a relationship with him if you don't want one. You're free to live with him or without him, and he will honor your choice. But that doesn't mean he's going to swoop in and protect you from the consequences of your decisions. What do we do with this psalm? 
First, let's say what the psalm is not saying. Not every tragedy is God's act of judgment against sin. Okay, America is not the covenant people of God. We don't have to interpret every pandemic, every school shooting, every natural disaster as though God was punishing someone. Tragedies happened in Jesus' day, and people would walk up to Jesus and say, Hey, what, what happened here? Did these people have it coming? And Jesus would say, no. And then he'd say, but unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, don't go searching the headlines for people to judge. When you're reminded of your own mortality, search your own heart and make sure that you're right with God. And for that matter, don't assume that every time you suffer, every time something bad happens in your life, that God is punishing you for something you did. That's not how God works. God loves to forgive. God loves to restore. But we're forgiven and restored not by enduring punishment, but by repenting. So what's repentance? Let's drill down into that one. Literally, to repent means to turn, to move in a new direction. It's not just feeling sorry for your sin. It's feeling sorry enough to quit. When a friend of mine witnessed extreme poverty, he was convicted of his materialism and he gave away most of his possessions. That's repentance. When another friend of mine was convicted about his use of pornography, he gave away most of his devices and installed accountability software. That's repentance. Not feeling bad about yourself. New action. Repentance is more than a feeling. It's moving in a whole new direction. If you want God to explode in your life, if you want to start bearing fruit, the answer is probably not more religious activity. The answer is repentance, turning away from the things God hates and turning toward God himself. Now, there are two different approaches to repenting. And one is based on fear, and the other is based on joy. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I am such a terrible person. God is going to be so mad at me. God, please don't punish me. What, what can I do to get on your good side? Do you want me to go to church more often? Do you want me to give more? Do you want me to volunteer more? What, what, do, you, what do you want? How do I get rid of this guilt? By the way, this is, this is what Israel was doing. What do you want, God? More sacrifices? More songs? How can we convince you to save us? Fear-based repentance really isn't repentance at all. It's self-pity. Just feeling bad about yourself. And it's just another attempt to control and manipulate God. It's dead religion. Friends, fear is a terrible motivator. When you find, when you locate fear inside of you and it starts motivating your decisions and actions, you need to, you need to say, this is not a good road to go down. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves and, and ultimately it makes us resent God. Because the only way we're relating to God is the one who punishes us. Repentance that's based on joy makes us hate our sin. But joy-based repentance doesn't start with us, it starts with Jesus. 
Jesus gave himself for me? He left heaven and took on flesh for me? He died for me? Before I did anything for him? Why would I ever seek satisfaction and security apart from him? What a foolish thing to do. If I have Jesus, I have everything I need. I don't need to pretend to be someone I'm not so that people will like me. Jesus already tells me that I'm his beloved. I don't need to look down on other people to feel good about myself. Jesus already tells me that I'm beautifully and wonderfully made. I don't have to cheat and cut corners to make it to the front of the line. Jesus is my provider and my shepherd. See, when my repentance is based on fear, my heart is still cold toward God. But when my repentance is based on joy, on what God has done for me, on what God wants to do for me, when I meditate on God's all-sufficient grace, His perfect love for me, my heart is warm. I actually care. I want to please God. I want to be with God. I want to obey Him. Not so I can get something out of Him, but just because He's beautiful. And now sin begins to lose its power over me because it's just less attractive to me than Jesus. Joy is a wonderful motivator. If you want God to explode in your life, if you want to bear fruit, don't beat yourself up. Don't focus on what you did wrong. Meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Meditate on the price he paid for you. We have this uh, tendency in the West of applying Scripture only to our lives individually. But remember, Psalm 80 is a communal lament. It's about how the people of God had become an object of derision, and together they needed to be restored. And this is particularly important because God's reputation is tied to his people. You ever thought about that? If his people are a laughing stock, then God's reputation takes a hit. When the church fails to live out God's heart, when it becomes an object of ridicule, fewer people are drawn to Jesus. Fewer people will seek him. So we have to ask ourselves, has the church in America become an object of derision? Are we enticing people to step toward Jesus? Or are we pushing people away? Are we listening to our prophets? Are we bearing fruit? I was talking with our old friend Jim Van Ipern a couple weeks ago. Jim and his wife Sharon uh, lead a ministry that specializes in healing conflicted churches. And this year, the whole focus of their ministry has shifted to healing churches that are being torn into by politics. And Jim said to me, Bill, we need a reckoning. There is so much division in our culture, and the church is complicit. We're part of the problem. And what's underneath all this division is pride. He said, our, our churches are filled with people who look at their brothers and sisters across the aisle and say to themselves, I'm better than you. I'm right, you're wrong. 
And if that's what people see when they look at churches, if they see warring factions of self-righteous people who don't know how to sit down together, we'll never be able to show the world the kind of righteousness that comes by way of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And he's right. Jesus said that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. I mean, there are pages and pages in the New Testament about the centrality of unity in the Christian life. A church can't be a place of division. It has to be a refuge for people who are sick and tired of taking sides. Other prophets are speaking of the church. Other prophets are calling us to repent and bear fruit. They're calling us to, when we choose our leaders, to value character over charisma and servanthood over celebrity. They're calling us to discern and value truth. They're calling us to love all of our neighbors, not just those who are like us. They're calling us to stop escaping into and consuming culture and start creating and redeeming culture. Are we listening to our prophets? Are we turning away from our idols and turning toward Jesus? Are we allowing God to prune us so that we bear fruit? All right, we need some good news at this point, right? We can... <laughs> In verses 15 and 17, we read about someone called the Son of Man. Who's that? Scholars have three theories. One is that it's Israel's king at the time. You know, the phrase, the man at God's right hand, kind of gives this theory credibility. Another is that it refers to Israel as a whole. So like in verse 15, son of man is in parallel with the vine, which we know is Israel. And then another theory is that it's the Messiah. If your hand is on the son of man, we won't turn away. I think it's possible that in some weird way that perhaps the author wasn't even aware of, it could be all three. All three of these things could be in view. But either way, the psalmist seems to be saying that everything hinges on the Son of Man. Everything hinges on the Son of Man. And we know what happened. Israel, they turned away from God. They didn't follow their shepherd. They stopped bearing fruit. God sent prophets, called them to repent. They refused. The northern kingdom falls. They never come back. And that would have been it. Except God had made a promise to David long ago that his line would never end. And he made a promise to Israel through the prophet Micah that there would always be a faithful remnant. And there was. And through defeat and death and deportation and centuries of occupation and oppression, there was a remnant. You know some of their names, perhaps. Elizabeth and Zechariah, Mary and Joseph, Anna and Simeon, Magi from the east, shepherds from Bethlehem. They were there to receive the Messiah, to rejoice at his arrival. And when Jesus grew up and went public 30 years later, he began his ministry the same way the prophets ended theirs. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. 
just before Jesus was crucified, he was gathered with his friends in that upper room. And he said to them, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Make your home in me, as I also make my home in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you make your home in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not make your home in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. If we make our home in Jesus, we are destined not for fire, but for fruit. Not for judgment, but for joy. I, I don't know what's going to become of the church in America in the coming years. From where I stand, there do seem to be a lot of branches in desperate need of pruning. And I worry often that the church has become an object of derision. That we become known for attitudes and behaviors that have nothing to do with Jesus. I wonder if the church will continue to shrink in size, if Christian influence in the dominant culture will continue to wane. We may be headed into an era in which the church is a small, maybe misunderstood minority like it was at the beginning in the Roman Empire. It could be that the church's days of having the best real estate in the center of town and enjoying tax-exempt privileges are numbered. I have no idea. But I have hope. I have hope because of the Son of Man. I have hope because Jesus is the true vine who shows the world what God is really like. I have hope because if we make our home in him, he will cast out our fear and he'll make us fully alive and will bear much fruit. I have hope because if we make our home in him, we will be known in the world for our love for one another and for our joy. I have hope because I know that there will always be a faithful remnant of God's people. And as long as I'm here, <laughs> my focus will be to keep us connected to the vine so that we can keep bearing fruit. And sometimes that will 
require confronting idols and calling us to repent. Sometimes that will mean rejoicing in who Jesus is and what he's so graciously done for us. But I don't want our love to ever grow cold. I don't want to play church. I want us to be in the vine, to have God's life flowing through our veins, renewing and transforming us so that we become more like him. I want us, as we used to say, know Christ and make him known. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen.